Thank you very much. It is a huge privilege to be here on a day like this with some younger listeners, which is really, really great, much younger. Um, if you have a Bible with you, if you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, but if you don't normally bring a Bible or if you don't normally come to church, don't worry, the words will appear up here. Well, they already have. Uh, prophetic Bible passages appearing behind me. Um, if you're visiting today, and I hope you feel really welcome, it's great to have you with us. We have been in a little mini-series uh, this month of September called Home, and we've been talking about how the church is a home for God and a home for people, and then talking about how we manage our homes as followers of Jesus. And so today, we, as we're celebrating the gift of children across the church, it's a good opportunity to talk about how we raise and train children in the home. But as soon as I say that, I think what a lot of people do is to assume I'm talking about parenting. And we think raising and training children equals parenting. And that's a, that's a sort of 21st century British thing that we go, well, that's basically something that only parents do. So if I'm not a parent of young children, if my, parent, my children are older, or if I don't have kids, if I'm single or haven't yet got children, we think, this isn't for me. This is for people like the couples we've just prayed for. That's not the way the Bible sees the bringing up of children. The way the world of Scripture, children are born into a community. Like this, they're born into a whole family, which runs to far more than just one or two people who look after them, or a carer, or whatever. In the passage we're about to read, Paul, refer, Paul is a childless, single man. But he refers, in, the, in his opening, to this young man who he mentors, Timothy, my beloved child. Right? That's the way the Bible thinks about relationships between men and women and children. So actually, if I'm, and young people, if I am giving you input and shaping you and mentoring you in the faith, I have responsibility for your care, not just the parents. Whereas in Britain, what we do is we say, no, it's only the parents. You make the decisions as the parents and the state, right? the government, the, the education system. That's how we train children. Whereas in the world of Scripture, no, the, the children are, of course, parents have the primary responsibility before God, which is why we've honoured and prayed for them. But the community as a whole raises children and trains and gives spiritual shaping and life. And that's true of grandparents. It's true of carers and foster parents and whoever you are, and just single adults who input into the lives of younger people. We are all called to raise children together in that sense. One generation will proclaim your works to another. Not just mum and dad, right? the whole community. And there are varying levels of responsibility, and it's appropriate we understand that. But this, when we talk about raising and training children, this isn't just something for mums and dads of young kids. This is something for the community as a whole. And so mothers and fathers have a unique responsibility, but it takes a village to raise a child. So we're going to read 2 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to look at how Paul understands handing on faith to the next generation, discipling, making a disciple of the next generation. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells in you as well. 
For this reason, I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me. This is the word of God. This is Paul's last letter. He's in prison. He's about to be executed, and he's passing on the baton of the Christian faith to his young protege, Timothy, whom he's been mentoring for years At the end of the letter, he writes words which have become very famous, and you've probably heard them even if you don't normally come to church. I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Even if you only heard it via Bon Jovi, you've probably heard it, right? There is a sense of handover here that Paul is saying, at the end of my life, I want you to know I'm going to go the way of all flesh, but I want you to carry on what I have been running with. And on that basis, he's saying, Timothy, you've got to hold fast to the gospel. So the whole letter is a letter about passing Christian faith through the generations. In fact, if you read chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul is thinking four generations out in this letter. It's an amazing little statement he makes. He says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, you must entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others as well. You heard it from me, now you tell others and then they'll tell someone else. It's a four-generation-long plan Paul is talking about in the discipling of the next generation. So although he's not talking about parenting, Paul himself doesn't even have kids, he's talking about the passing on of the faith to the next generation. And as he does that, he not only looks forward, but he looks back. You probably noticed as we read it that he looks back across the generations and says, well, Timothy, you got your faith, it would seem, from three older people. You got it from your grandmother, Lois. You got it from your mum, Eunice. And you got it from me. You're, you're my child in the faith. So he's tracing back the, the, the ancestry of his faith in order to remind him, now you need to pass it on to the next generation. And many commentators think that's what Paul's doing in the whole letter, is to say, Timothy, remember the people you got the faith from, and now in the same way, you make sure you pass it on to the next one. And in that context, there seem to be three particular things that Paul wants Timothy to do right up front in this letter that will help him run the race of faith himself and then hand it on to the next generation. Which, as I say, is not just a call upon the parents we've just prayed for. It's the call of the whole community to raise children in the faith. And those three things that he identifies, particularly in this chapter, are faith, suffering, and grace. He insists on faith, suffering, and grace. The first one is probably very obvious. Of course, if you want to pass on the faith to the next generation, you need to live a life of faith yourself. And that's kind of, that's kind of true, but it's worth make, making that point anyway. I am reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother and then in your mum, and now it dwells in you. 
In other words, you seem to have, it's not like faith can be passed on without faith in the individual, right? You need to trust for yourself. Children make their own decisions. But the faith that you have was passed to you by two previous generations, and you need to know that their life of faith is a major reason, probably the major reason why you live a life of faith as well. Most of us don't do what we're told. We do what we're shown. That's what most people do. Children, in fact, is more true. It's embarrassing how true it is if you have kids of your own because you notice them doing things that you know they could only have learned from you. So I watch my children walk through, my sons do it, and they walk through the house at high speed. They collide with a wooden object, as I do probably about once a week, I stub my toe about once a week on average, and then they collapse in fits of rage, shouting and screaming, and then we've actually made a running joke out of it now. So when they do it, they just look at me and they go, Wilson boys. And I'm like, yeah, that is what we all do. You have learned a lifestyle of walking too fast without slippers or shoes, colliding with wooden objects, and then making a massive apocalyptic scene about it. And I know that you've learned that from me. And I never told you, hey guys, here's how to stub a toe. I'd, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Toe stubbing is agony. I've got a friend who says, she's given birth. She said, stubbing your toe is worse than having children. And I was like... Now, I don't think many women would go with me on that, but when she said it, I thought, I wore it as a badge of honor. And my boys seem to have caught it from somewhere because we don't just do what we're told, we do what we're shown. And that's, that's true of the life of faith, that our children will see what's true in us and they will often imitate it. Now, that's not a guarantee. We've got to be really clear on that. Anyone who's raised children for any length of time knows that it's not a guarantee. If you live a life of faith, your kids will too. Right? I know that in my own family, that's, that's true. And my brother-in-law has got Christian parents, and some of their siblings are saved and some of them are not. That's not, it's not a guarantee. Similarly, it's not a threat. If you're not a believer, it doesn't mean your kids won't be. My mum and dad are both believers, and none of their families were Christians. So we know it's not a guarantee or a threat. But the principle is that, in general, parents who trust God will find their children will often trust God as well. And that's what Paul's telling Timothy here. It's interesting that's not something that you just get from the Bible. You get it from mainstream research about sociology and religion as well. This is a little excerpt from the Association of Religion Data Archives, which I find encouraging, actually, right? This, this is what it said. That the holy grail for helping youth remain religiously active as young adults has been at home all along. Parents, mothers and fathers who practice what they preach and preach what they practice are far and away the major influence related to adolescents keeping the faith into their 20s, according to new findings from a landmark study of youth and religion. 82% of children raised by parents who talked about faith at home, attached great importance to their beliefs, and were active in their congregations, were themselves religiously active as young adults. Right? So not all of them, but 82%, according to the data from the latest wave of the National Study of Youth and Religion. The connection is nearly deterministic said University of Notre Dame sociologist Christian Smith, lead researcher for the study, parents, for better or worse, are actually the most influential pastors of their children, Smith said. Parents set a kind of glass ceiling of religious commitment above which their children rarely rise. Not never, rarely. That's kind of, I find, you could find that threatening. I actually find it encouraging because it shows me that faith is caught, not taught. So the job that I do of teaching my kids is not actually as important even as the job that I do of living out the Christian life in front of them so that they can see it's real for me. That's actually the best gift I can give them. And it's a big encouragement for parents who love Jesus, particularly if you're a parent who loves Jesus and thinks, I'm not sure I'm the most gifted teacher, 
I want to tell the children the gospel, but I'm not sure that's my, I'm not great at that, but what I can do is live the life of faith so they can see it works. It's not a guarantee, but it's an encouragement, and it's why Paul says, for this reason, fan into flame the gift of God. If you want to pass the faith on, one of the things you've got to do is keep saying, I want to fan into flame that which God has given me in order that others might also catch it. That's faith. The, your own faith is, is a key to the younger generation living in faith themselves. The second key we don't like to think about so much, it's suffering, the need for suffering. And the way that we suffer is gonna be a way in which the faith is passed on to the next generation. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 11, I was appointed a preacher, teacher, apostle, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. So this connection here between suffering and not being ashamed is crucial for Paul in the way that you lead others and lead others to come into Christian faith themselves in handing the faith on to the next generation. He says it again in chapter two. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. You see, the connection is like, you want to pass the faith on through the generations, you've got to share in suffering. Because the way that you suffer is going to demonstrate to those who are younger than you that the Christian faith is true. In fact, there are a number of us here who came to faith in Christ because we saw somebody else going through something really hard and clinging to God, and we thought, I think there must be something in that. And that's how, that's how we got here. That's how we came to worship Jesus ourselves. It's one of the most powerful witnesses to Christianity is the way people suffer. People can argue about ideas and debates and apologetics, and I do a lot of that. I love that stuff, but actually you can argue for ages and never win. But at the end, it becomes very difficult to refute somebody who suffers for the gospel and then shares what God has done in their life. It's very difficult to say, to dismiss that. Right? I find that that's true within the church. That sometimes the, the testimony of a suffering person carries far more weight than the testimony of somebody who hasn't suffered much. When the, the church that I used to be in was planted by um, a guy from very near here, actually, from Downham, and he, went, he moved down there sort of 35 years ago to plant a church, and th he said when we first arrived, a lot of the other churches were quite dismissive of our church. They said, you're just happy clappy. Right? You just sit there and act like everything's fine. And he used to have this line, he would say, I'd always rather be happy clappy than humpy grumpy, uh, which I just thought was a great comment. But he said, you know, people just, they waved us away. And, what I used, and then what happened is we got a few older saints who stuck with us, and then they started dying. Because that's what happens. At the end of a long, well-lived life for the Lord, people die. And he used to say to other leaders, and he still said it to us as younger leaders, he said, if you think this is flaky, watch my people die. Watch People suffer and die and cling to the Lord in hope and you will know there is substance to this Christian faith. It's a witness. And if you share in suffering and are unashamed of it, it witnesses to the truth of what you're saying. And so actually for parents and for those of us who want younger people to come through in faith, suffering well and learning to do that is going to validate what you say. It's going to teach other people this is not just in good times. This is in bad times as well. And the place where suffering is most obvious is in our home. So here's a picture. This is my family. I don't think I've put a picture of my family up here before. So that's my in-laws and me and my wife and my three kids 
and my brother-in-law. But some of you know our story, and our older two children had, had very complicated sort of health things with autism and epilepsy and ADHD and all kinds of things, which has been made life, particularly for my daughter, very, very difficult. And so for several years, a really, really tough time as a family. And what happens is when you do that in a family context, family, your close friends, people who know your family, whether they believe in Jesus or not, they get to see the way you suffer and it communicates something of the truth or not of what you say you believe. And we did not suffer perfectly and no one does. But what we've often found is that people have seen in our family something of the way you handle adversity that draws people to say, I think there might be something in this. Children and young people in particular actually watch you as you suffer because what they're trying to do is, does this faith work? Like teenagers do that all the time. They look and say, does it actually work or is it just like a positive thinking thing where you go, oh, well, I'm sure we can put a positive spin on everything or are you really holding fast to God in this situation? So if kids watch you, right? They watch you whether you're a parent or not. They watch, young, they watch people in their 20s who are single and they watch those people run into bumps in the road and the way that we respond and they notice. If you act like everything's fine even though inside you're dying but you try and put a good face on it, they notice it. If you abandon your walk with God when things are hard and then come back when things are going well, they notice and they think, well, this, is just, this is just positive thinking. This is a club. But they also notice if when you hit bumps in the road, you grieve, you cry out to God, you ask for forgiveness even when you do things that are wrong as well, you worship him in the storm, you ask for help, you have the humility to do that, and you cling to the Lord in hope that one day the world will not be like this, and you trust him, they notice that as well. Praise God. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So you live, we live lives of faith and we suffer for the gospel. And both of those two things are pretty crucial in showing others, whether they're our kids or not, showing others that the gospel is true. But the third key, was in some ways for me is the most important one, the third key is grace. It's, almost the, it's the most important one in some ways, but it's also the hardest one. God, this Paul just referring, just beginning his letter, as he so often does, with grace. God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace, the unmerited, transforming favor of God, which he gave you not because you deserved it with anything you'd done, but because he wanted to give you a good gift. Now, I say it's, it's really important, but it's also the hardest one if you're raising children. And I think that's because nothing tempts you to legalism, the idea, you know, cause and effect, what you put in is what you get out, or and you'll, things will go well. Nothing tempts you to legalism as much as parenting, in my experience. Training and discipling children would, could make legalists of us all. There's a number of reasons why that's true, right? Children are natural legalists, right? They want everything to be fair. Oh, that's not fair. One of the first things kids learn how to say, right? I want, I want everything to be fair. Do I need to get a different mic? Or is this, is this going okay? All right, okay, I'll, I'll take this one. Children want everything to be fair. They want everything to be consistent. They want referees. They want rules. They want clarity. They want, I want to know whether this leads to that. And it always needs to be the same. So children, kind of in a good way, but there's a dangerous side to it. Children are legalists. And actually, many adults are as well. But that means that 
getting what you deserve is an integral principle for a child, and that means they naturally come to believe in law and not in grace. And so do you and I. Right? That's one reason. I think another reason is kids find theology hard. Right? A lot of adults do too. Kids find theological concepts like grace, unmerited transforming favor, they find it difficult to understand. I'm a, I teach the Bible for a living, and my kids don't understand an awful lot of theology. And when I try and I think I've explained it, it's amazing what sometimes comes out. Okay? The other day, I was reading the Bible. This, is, this isn't a preacher story. I don't tend to go in for preacher stories. I mean, this is a, a true story. I was reading the Bible with my son, Zeke, and we got to the bit where Jesus is betrayed and handed over. And, it's, and I said, Zeke, can we notice? It says they're going to punish Jesus. And he said, yeah. I said, well, do you remember how did they do that? He said, they sent him to crazy golf or something? <laughs> now, can you see how he got there? Because I couldn't. So I just paused with this kind of expression. Anyway, and I said, what? what? He said, yeah, they did. Yeah, crazy golf or something like that. Golf skull, I think they called it. And that triggered a little link. And I went, hang on, see, do you mean they sent him to Golgotha, the place of the skull? He went, yeah, 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 that's it. And I thought, you explain things and you think you've done a really great job and your kids still don't know what you're talking about. And it was just marvelous. But it helped me realize, of course, some children are going to struggle with grace just because it's a theological idea that you can't physically see and that makes it hard to understand. So you're going to have to work at, at helping children understand grace. But you have also got to work that you as a parent or a carer or someone with input into a young person's life, that you don't function like a legalist because you are tempted as well to see the whole world in terms of law. Raising children involves establishing boundaries and setting rules, which if you're not careful can mean that all you do is to describe good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and enforce that in your kids' lives. And so the risk is they learn legalism and you begin to believe it too doesn't mean you don't have boundaries, right? It's crucial. But if that's all we do, it's very easy for them to connect the dots and think, oh, God is basically just a big lawgiver. And because you and I want to do well, particularly if you're a parent, you feel a great sense of responsibility. We are suckers for the idea that if you just do this, this, and this, your kids will work out fine. And it's never true. It's all lies, right? That whole section in Waterstones, all lies, right? <laughs> Often good principles... But the guarantees are just nonsense. And you and I, because we want to do well, we swallow the lie very easily and become legalists ourselves. And that means that if your kids are doing badly, you feel racked with guilt. And if your kids are doing well, you feel insufferably smug. Right? And both of those are bad. So if you're not careful, we are going to raise graceless children. What we have to do to counter that is to continually preach this kind of thing to our kids in age-appropriate ways. God saves you not because of your works, but because of his purpose and grace. And he gave you that in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and certainly before you began. God loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're great. He doesn't love you because you did well, because you did good exams, because you were obedient to me. He loves you because he created you, and that's the end of it. And you have to preach grace to yourself and to your children, even if you don't do it in the right slightly shouty way I just did and that for me right I've got a three-year-old boy that for me means telling him when he's done something wrong I learned this from another friend of mine who I just think has really helped me listen Sam I love you when you're good I love you when you're naughty I love you all the time and then when he does something really good he's really pleased with himself I just did this 
I'm like, Sam, I love you when you're good, but I love you when you're naughty as well. I love you all the time. So that hopefully as the day, when the day comes, he will be able to hear the words of his father saying, Sam, I love you when you're good, and I love you when you're naughty, and I love you all the time. He will hear the Lord God saying it to him and not just me. And as they get older still, they're going to hopefully come to love texts like this in the Bible. God saved us not because of our works, but because of his grace, which he gave us in Christ. And in between those things, we want to live lives that practice the power of grace, not just preach it. That we are able to say, what you did was wrong. It was totally wrong. You are going to face the following consequences for what you did, and I am never going to stop loving you. I'm never, my kids find that very, that sentence often moves them. They just say, you're never going to stop loving me. No, you are never. No matter what you do, no matter how far from home you go, you go off into another country, you spend all my money, you eat pig pods, and you come home, I will be there with my arms outstretched to welcome you back into our home because that's what parents do. That's what grace is. I've actually just written a children's book about this. Um, No kidding. I decided... Uh, that it was about time that I wrote something at uh, the appropriate level for our senior pastor, so I decided to write a children's book. I mean, he's, he's not in the room, so I felt like I could say it. He's been saying, why are you always writing these obscure theological books? Just write something for me. So I went, no, I'm, I'm joking. That's very unfair. Um, but I've just written, written a children's book, um, which I've got here, and I just want to read it to you. The pictures will come up on the screen as well, because it's all about teaching children about grace. And I just thought it might help you. If you could hear this, not just as, oh, that's how I could explain it, but just allow the novelty of grace to hit you, if you can. But this is the, this is the story. Sophie is crying. Her sister, Michaela, has broken her dollhouse, and nobody cares. To make matters worse, she's pushed over her sister, then yelled at her parents and stormed up the stairs. She looks out the window and sees on the chimney the cat from the Heidelberg's house next door. She stares at it when to her utter amazement it suddenly asks her, you're crying, what for? Sophie is very surprised, but she knows that you cannot tell lies to a talking cat. Michaela just broke my new doll's house, she says, so I gave her a shove and I knocked her down flat. Then I screamed at my parents and ran to my room and now I feel guilty for doing all that. In fact, I feel worse about that than the doll's house. What do you mean? asks the Heidelberg cat. Well, Sophie whispers, I've upset Michaela, I've upset my mum, I've upset my dad. And worst of all, I've even upset God, and the Bible says that means I'm really bad. The cat puts its paws on the windowsill, grins, and says, Sophie, let's go for a rooftop walk. Quick as a flash, Sophie climbs out the window. She knows you say yes to a cat that can talk. Scrambling up tiles and walking down roofs, they peer into houses and gardens and chat. The birds in the skies raise their eyes in surprise at a girl on a roof with a talking cat. Right, says the cat, you just mentioned the Bible. So what do you think it's trying to say? Easy, says Sophie. It's trying to tell us how we can please God and be kind and obey. Be bold like King David. Be brave like Queen Esther. And do what God tells you, no matter how scary. Don't fight him like Pharaoh or trick him like Judas. Be patient like Paul and respectful like Mary. The cat looks at Sophie. And are you? It asks. Not really, says Sophie, at least not for long. That's why I was crying before. It's so hard to be good all the time, and it always goes wrong. Aha, says the cat. Let me tell you a secret. There's no one who can. Not your mum or your dad, your friends or your neighbours, and even your teacher when no one is looking is surprisingly bad. Look round the street. Mrs. Gubbards is rude. The Macintosh children are always in fights. The pastor gets angry. The shopkeeper's proud. And the Joneses have horrible quarrels at night. Sophie looks puzzled. That's awful, she says. What hope is there if things are really like that? She sits on a chimney and stares at the sky. 
I'm so glad you asked, says the Heidelberg cat. The Bible tells stories of hundreds of people, and all of them disobey God except one. So hope doesn't come from the good things we do. It comes as a gift from what Jesus has done. You've trusted in him, so he's paid for your sins and thrown them all into the depths of the sea. By rising again, he has broken the power of death and the devil and let you go free. He watches your life. He makes all things work out. He helps you make choices. He tells you what's true. He promises you'll live forever with him. And that's why the hope comes from him, not from you. Sophie sits still to make sure the cat's finished. She has enough questions to ask for a week. But she knows very well, as I'm sure you do too, that you always leave time for a cat that can speak. I'd better go home, Sophie finally says, and tell them I'm sorry. But thanks for the talk. I'm so looking forward to telling my friends that I spent to, spoke to a cat and we went for a walk. One other thing you should know, says the cat, as it silently crosses the tiles on all fours. The best and most comforting news in the world is that I am not mine and you are not yours. Sophie is shocked. What on earth do you mean? Well, look at the tag on my neck, says the cat. It tells you my name, then it tells you my owners. The Heidelbergs bought me, I'm theirs, and that's that. The same goes for you. You've been rescued by Jesus, so he is your master from now till you die. He'll love you, protect you, and never neglect you, but you're not your own, Sophie, and neither am I. At last they arrive right outside Sophie's window. She clambers back in with her hand on the slat. When will I see you again, Sophie asks. I'm not sure you will, says the Heidelberg cat, but to help you remember our first conversation, I'll give you my tag with my name, just in case. With that, it goes back to the Heidelberg's chimney, and Sophie looks down at the tag. It says, Grace. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful and so surprised yet again for the truth of the grace of God. Lord, we want to lead lives of faith, whether we are parents, grandparents, carers, foster parents, single people, members of a community. We want to lead lives of faith. We want to suffer well, and we want to put the grace of God on display. But Lord, more than anything else, we are thankful at the grace that came and found us. We thank you that you love us when we are good. You love us when we're naughty. You love us all the time. And we pray that we would live lives like that as individuals, families, and a community to the glory of the grace of Jesus. And in his name we pray. Amen.